From Renaissance Magic to Follow the Science. The subtitle of this is The Renaissance Believed in Magic Like Moderns Believe in Science. In 1598 and 1599, a huge renegade friar organized a revolt to liberate Calabria from Spain. Calabria is um, like the heel of the toe of Italy. And it was under Spanish rule at the time. The monk's name was Tommaso Campanella. And by the way, there's lots of names in this podcast that I may not know how to pronounce, but I'm pretty sure I got, I'm getting them right. Anyway, Tommaso Campanella started the revolt with astrology. He announced to his followers that the stars portended great changes in revolution. He then added numerology, noting that the numbers agreed with the stars. The year 1600 was approaching, and 16 is numerologically significant. The new century Campanella preached would mark the dawn of a new age, an age with a better religious cult, better moral laws, and an excellent ruler, to wit, Campanella, (laughs) who thought he was astrologically destined to bring the world into the new age. In order to prepare for the new age, Campanella taught it was first necessary to overthrow Spanish rule. But he believed so strongly in his personal magical powers and the magical signs that, he's, that he scarcely prepared for Spain's inevitable response. His re- quote-unquote revolution was quickly crushed and Campanella was imprisoned for 27 years. During his imprisonment, he channeled his utopian magical desires into writing. He wrote The City of the Sun. In it, he drafted a blueprint for his ideal city, a mountain city ruled by a priest named Ho. Ho, it's H-O-H, almost like Chinese of some sort, but Ho. Ho and his bureaucratic aides would rule over sex relations, which would be organized to bring about the best humans. There would be no mental or physical disabilities. All things would be held in common, including the women and children would be raised by the community. Both sexes would be trained to fight. Everyone would work, but only four hours a day. Everyone would would practice perfect virtue, and there would be no crime. The The city structure would be dictated by astrology. It would be divided into seven divisions named after the seven planets. This is hundreds, I think Neptune was, was discovered in the late 1800s and well before Pluto was, developed, was discovered. So in the city, seven divisions after the seven planets. The walls which divided each division would be covered with astrological depictions. In the middle of the city, there would be a vast temple with an altar containing a great mapamundo or mapamondo on which all the heavens would be depicted. The dome would contain the greatest stars with a listing of the powers each has over the earth. In short, Campanella City was, quote, a complete reflection of the world as governed by the laws of natural magic and dependence on the stars, unquote. And it was, quote, saturated through and through with astrology, unquote. Those are quotes by Frances Yate. Uh, she was probably the foremost historian of the, uh, the magical movements in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. So we associate the Renaissance with the philosophy of humanism and an awakening from the dark slumber of the dark, or the dark, the slumber of the dark ages. But that's just a fuzzy idea at best. It's true that the Renaissance's philosophy was humanism, which was a departure from the emphases of the Middle Ages way of thinking. 
and it did put the Western civilization on the road to modernity. But the Renaissance was hardly modern. In fact, magic was the Renaissance's cutting edge. Renaissance magicians like Cornelius Agrippa and Giordano Bruno earned their money by teaching esoteric and magical doctrines, especially to royalty and society's upper crust. The pioneer of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, couldn't sustain himself by working as an astronomer, so he frequently fell back on working as a court astrologer. The physician and priest, Marsilio Ficino, went to great lengths to justify the use of magic. He taught the craft of making and using talismans, asserting that they gave the user a deeper understanding of spiritual workings within the mundane. The great Renaissance writer, and this is like the apex of the Renaissance, Pico della Mirandola, liked all sorts of magic, astrology, the occult, esoteric literature such as the Orphic Hymns, Chaldean Oracles, and the Jewish Kabbalah, and the writings of Hermes Trismegistus. We'll more on him shortly. Mirandola's great work, it's like the anthem of the Renaissance, called The Oration on the Dignity of Man, published in 1486, helped shape the Renaissance and, in turn, the modern world. I was recent, listened to a rec- lecture recently, and the historian, I think, uh, like Ohio State or something like that, she referred to this work as the, quote, quintessential humanist manifesto, unquote. But my woman, <laughs> Frances Yates, she's described Marandola's great work as the, quote, Great Chart of Renaissance Magic, unquote. So, bottom line is, the Renaissance, at least the late Renaissance, was heavily infused with magical practices. All right, so I understand some of you may not know exactly when the Renaissance was. So, like any era, no one agrees. I believe it's best referenced chronologically as an era that ran concurrently with the late Middle Ages. So, just giving your, 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 your footing... Early Middle Ages run from like 600 A.D. to 1000, which is the collapse of the socioeconomic structure of Western Europe following the, uh, the fall of the uh, Roman Empire in the West, all the way till the, the baptism of Hungary, when Hungary became Christian, pretty much all of Europe, with the, the exception of like the Baltics, were all Christian. That's the Early Middle Ages. The High Middle Ages run from 1000 to 1300. This is the era of the powerful popes and Thomas Aquinas, scholasticism. And then you have the late Middle Ages, 1300 to 1650. That's like the Black Plague, the Thirty Years' War, the Reformation. And that's the late Middle Ages, I believe, ran concurrently with the Renaissance. Now, if you want a precise date for when the Renaissance started, try April 6, 1327. That's the day when Petrarch left Eastern Mass and saw, quote-unquote, Laura. That's all he called her, Laura. He fell in love. No one knows who she was, but the most likely candidate is a woman named Laura de Sade, who, by the way, is an ancestor or a descendant of the Marquis de, or an ancestor of uh, Marquis de Sade, um, who wrote the um, uh, sadomasochist masterpieces of the 1800s, if you like your history with a little lasciviousness. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, actually, she was the wife of... Uh, the ancestor of the Marquis de Sade, who was married, and she's married at age 15 and would have uh, already birthed several children when Petrarch first saw her. So he sees this woman, again, we think it was her, saw her after Mass, like smitten, fell in love, but she was married. 
and his love was not returned. But he didn't fall for any other woman. He stayed infatuated with Laura, and his love was unrequited, and it burned him for the rest of his life, even after Laura was killed by the plague. But anyway, he channeled this passion into classical learning, especially Cicero. He collected classical manuscripts and writing. He became a household name. The Renaissance through Petrarch was born. People were reading works from antiquity and patronizing art in the classical tradition, including the first nude statue in over 1,000 years, Donatello's David, which I believe is in Florence. You want to go check it out. If you look it up, you'll, you'll recognize it. Everyone knows Donatello's David. So humanism was the philosophy of the Renaissance. Humanism marked a shift in thinking. Humanism was a sense that humans could do something, not just pray and wait for Judgment Day. The model? Ancient Greeks and Romans who did a ton of things, all without the help of Christianity. Now, the Renaissance was still thoroughly Catholic, but it was a Catholicism spiked with a dose of self-confidence. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do? The Renaissance thinkers increasingly asked, what would Cicero do? Or maybe Plato? Now, in order to know what Cicero or Plato or their ancient cohorts would do, scholars needed their words. This sparked a frenzy for manuscripts. Scholars searched high and low for ancient works. Rich merchants paid scribes to transcribe them. So that was the Renaissance. Classical art and literature combined with a new sense of self-confidence. Or rather, I should say, that was the Renaissance of the first 100 years. You see, as the Renaissance moved forward, it also moved backward. Here's what I mean. Throughout the early and high Middle Ages, monastic scribe, scribes translated and transcribed ancient texts. It was arduous, tedious, and challenging at the same time. Many ancient works went through successive versions. Over the centuries, an increasing number of mistakes crept into the manuscripts, and Renaissance scholars were discovering them. This created an intense interest in getting back to the original sources. A general sense emerged that older equaled purer, maybe even older equaled holier, which led to the idea that older writers were better, pure, holier, nearer to divine truth than newer writers. So Cicero was great, but Plato, who came about three or four hundred years before him, was even better. And if there were writers earlier than Plato... <laughs> you might have the Holy Grail there. And then in sixteen, or excuse me, 1460, a monk employed by one of the greatest patrons of Renaissance art and literature, Cosimo de' Medici, came back to Florence with the Corpus Hermeticum, the works of the ancient Egyptian Hermes Trismegistus, who knew the secrets of the universe and who, according to legend, created the art of writing. So this guy was really old. Cosimo was excited, to say the least. Everyone knew about this ancient writer, Hermes Trismegistus, but no one had seen many of his writings. And then this monk freaking shows up with 14 volumes. Cosimo ordered Marsilio Ficino to stop working on the translation of the work of Plato and instead fast-track Hermes volumes. That's right. Hermes Trismegistus knocked Plato to the side, <laughs> like George Costanza and the Seinfeld knocking the old woman in the walker to the side when he thought the apartment was on fire. 
It's like, ah, the hell with Plato. <laughs> we got Hermes Megasus, and he's really freaking old. He's got to be like close to absolute truth. Ficino finished the 14-volume translation in just a couple of months. He must have been working around the clock. He also gave a scholarly account for readers that explained that Hermitius Megasus was first in the genealogy of wisdom, which went to Ficino something like this. First Hermitius Megasus, then Zoroaster, then Orpheus, then Algophemus, and then Pythagoras, then Plato. Now, Ficino, just so you know, he, he seemed to... He's a scholar, uh, but he just has some dubious sources he's working from. He sometimes put Zoroaster first. Sometimes it said Hermes and Zoroaster were exactly at the same time period, which would be, gosh, I don't know, I'm guessing five or 600 BC. But anyway, um, Hermes was the man. And Europe now had in, in its hands the original font of knowledge, you know, from Hermes to his Megasus. And that font was filled with magical water astrology, the occult sciences, the secret virtues of plants and stones, the art of making talismans for drawing down the powers of the stars, and on and on and on. Europe was now aflame with the possibilities opened up by these writings. The sense that humans could do something was now fueled by a belief that they could use magic to do it. Or rather, great magicians could use magic to do great things, whether it was to turn iron into gold, you know, alchemy, or to establish utopian communities of the sort envisioned by Tama Tommaso Campanella. Magic, people believed, was a great tool that would usher in great progress. And then came the killjoy. <laughs> Along came Isaac Casubon, perhaps the most brilliant and era-shifting man you've never heard of. In 1614, he killed the ancient Hermes Megasus, by showing, establishing, these 14 volumes were written relatively late, around the year 200 A.D., well after Plato, after Cicero. Now, by Renaissance standards, this made Hermes Megasus less than impressive, to say the least. He didn't come shortly after Moses. Heck, he didn't even come before Christ or the Church Fathers. He'd roughly be equivalent, if you guys, if, if you're acquainted with the early Church Fathers, with Origen. The man who lopped off his penis because he said it kept him setting. He took the gospel injunction seriously. But yeah, so Trismegasus uh, didn't even predate the church fathers. And then Europe's reverence for magic came crashing down. Francis Yates said Casabam's discovery, quote, is a watershed separating the Renaissance world from the modern world, unquote. Now I'm just going to read you this passage. She used very vivid terms. What Kassbaum did, um, it shattered at one blow the buildup of Renaissance Neoplatonism with its basis and the Prissy, and I'm butchering that Latin, P-R-I-S-C-I, Prisky, theology of whom Hermitius Megasus was the chief. It shattered the whole position of the Renaissance Magus and Renaissance Magic. It shattered even the non-magic Christian Hermetic movement of the 16th century. It shattered, too, the basis of all attempts to build a natural theology on Hermeticism, such as that to which Campanella had pinned his hopes. Casabon, in short, shattered the Renaissance. But Casabon didn't shatter Renaissance humanism and its belief that humans could do things and the corollary love of the notion of progress. Europe near, merely needed to change the tool. Instead of using magic, it would need something else. And it turned to science. <laughs>